Well, again, let me say good morning. I'm glad you're here, and you're here on a great Sunday. It's always a great Sunday to be in the Lord's house, but this is it. This is the final installment of the first Peter series. You have uh, have made it. You have persevered, and we're going to be in chapter 5 today, looking at the final verses of first Peter. First Peter chapter 5. While you're making your way to first Peter 5, uh, I want to set the theme for what we're going to be talking about today by um, uh, a little uh, nature trivia. You may not know this. You, you know the humans, we think of ourselves as the top of the food chain. Uh, do you know the, uh, the number one human predator in the animal kingdom? Tigers look very scary and bears get all the press. But actually, uh, the most people are killed by the, uh, the mountain lion. Mountain lion. Mountain lions are regarded as the number one human predator. So naturalist Craig Childs wrote a book called The Animal Dialogues. And in this book, he writes about all, he's this adventurer, he writes about all this crazy stuff that's happened to him while he's out in the wild. And once he was on foot doing research on mountain lions in the Arizona's Blue Range Wilderness, he approaches a water hole, he sees a mountain lion, the lion doesn't notice. When he, when he finishes, uh, he thinks it's gone away, he goes to like track its, you know, identify its tracks and do all his scientific research, and 30 feet away he sees a pair of eyes, and... Um, uh, the, the mountain lion begins to come toward him. And I, I just want to read you a portion of his account. This, this incredible book. The book's called The Animal Dialogues. But uh, he, he pulls a knife and stares into the eyes of this mountain lion. And here's what I want you to look for. He knows what to do. And more importantly, he knows what not to do. Let me just read you a portion of his account. He writes, Instead of running, it stands. Without a pause for thought, it moves out from under the shadows so that both of us are in the same sunlight. We make clear, rigid eye contact. It begins walking straight toward me. Now, by the way, I'm done at this point. Like, you know, like, I'm, anyway, he writes, my heartbeat lodges into my throat. My adrenaline dumps all of it. (laughs) No dilemma in the lion's eyes. It stares me down as if I am prey backed up against a water hole. Even with a slow, lucid gait, it's already in my world. It looks up at me from under its brow, so its head is down. Eyes are shelved by shadow. It's a stalking stare. The distance is closed in seconds. The cat is going to attack me. I pull a knife off my right hip. It has a five-inch blade. One claw against eight claws. The advantage is not mine. Mountain lions are known to take down animals six, seven, eight times their size. Here's their method. They attack from behind. Clamp onto the spine at the base of the prey's skull. Snap the spine. The top few vertebrae are the target, housing respiratory and motor skills that cease instantly when the cord is cut. Mountain lions have stalked people for miles. Bone is rarely ever broken. The teeth slide between vertebrae and open the spine surgically. Cat teeth are heavily laden with nerves. The animal can actually feel its way around the spine and find the area for incision. So this voice inside of me says, run, find shelter. What I do instead, watch this, what I do instead is not move. My eyes lock onto the mountain lion. I hold firm to my ground and do not even hint that I'm going to back off. If I run, it is certain. I'll have a mountain lion all over me. If I give it my back, I'll only briefly feel its weight on me against the ground. The canine teeth will open my vertebrae without breaking a bone. If it can intimidate me, push the panic button to get me to run, the kill is sealed. The mountain lion begins to move to my left and I turn, (laughs) keeping my face on it. It paces to my right, trying to get around my other side to get behind me. I turn, staring right at it. My stare is the only defense I have. Now, 
when I read that, I thought, maybe I should just give the altar call right then and there. (laughs) So intense. Can you imagine? He knows. Everything in him says, run! He knows if he turns and runs, that's exactly what the mountain lion wants. And will attack from behind, and it'll be over. And so he must face, stare down, and resist. Uh, just so you're not left on a cliffhanger, uh, the, uh, he, he lives to ride another day. Uh, eventually the lion gives up and slinks away. He was defeated by a man who knew exactly what to do in its presence. Now, what on earth does this interesting encounter with a mountain lion have to do with First Peter? And what is more importantly, what does it have to do with us? Look at chapter 5, verse 8. You'll see. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, You see, right, we're talking this morning about the devil, about his roaring and prowling like a lion. I hope you can see from Craig Childs' uh, 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 account the, some similarities in how our adversary, the devil, works. You know, uh, all over hiking trails in the southwest, you'll see warning signs. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Arizona or New Mexico and you've been out and decided to go hiking. But you'll see these warning signs. You are now in mountain lion country. Uh, they're not a joke. They're, they're, they're not up there ironically. And they say, if, if, if you can just, you know, Google these if you want to see for yourself. But they all say the same thing. You are a mountain lion. And the number one thing, it says, if you encounter a mountain lion, big bold letters, it all, they all say it. Do not run. <laughs> Stand your ground. Stay in groups. Be watchful. That's not a bad sermon. Do not run. Fear is going to try to take you down. Do not run. Stand your ground. Stay in groups, y'all. Stay in groups. I would have put Sunday school, but all right. And stand your ground. Be watchful. As a pastor, a shepherd, I I, I know what Peter is doing here. Uh, Haven't you seen it? Hasn't the enemy devoured families? Haven't you seen the enemy devour families? Marriages? Haven't we seen the enemy devour churches? Children who seemed like they were on the good path? Devout men who started out so faithful? Have you seen the enemy devour joy, devour hope, spit out the bones of addiction and betrayal and hurt and anger and loneliness and fear and depression and death and anxiety? I have. So just like a sign about mountain lions, 1 Peter 5 has given us a warning. Uh, These signs might save your physical life, What Peter's trying to do is save your spiritual life. And so I want to walk around this text in this way. It's very simple. The outline's very simple. I'm calling today's sermon, How to Survive a Lion Attack. What to do, here's the outline, you ready? How to survive a lion attack. What to do before the attack, what to do during the attack, and what what to do after the attack. Simple, right? How to survive a lion attack. What to do before, 
what to do during, what to do after. Let's start with before. The before is verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the first step in surviving an attack from the devil, in surviving this lion attack, maybe the most obvious, but I'll say it anyway, the first step is admitting there is a devil. That may seem completely obvious, but uh, I, I think it needs to be said. A good friend of mine, C.S. Lewis wrote in his introduction to the Screwtape Letters, you may know this famous quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our human race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I love that. The demons don't care which lie you believe, which error you make, so long as you take one of the extreme positions. Uh, uh, you might label them as superstition, right? The devil's under every bush. Or <laughs> the opposite of superstition is actually substition, uh, that there's no such thing. Superstition are those who feel that the devil's ever under bush. They, they, they constantly feel they're being attacked by the devil, that the devil is everywhere, that uh, uh, even the usual sufferings uh, are part of life. You know, uh, they get a flat tire or they get a cold or an unexpected bill and they see that as demonic and they, they study demonology and they study the occult to such an unhealthy degree that they end up terrified all the time. That's superstition. They, they obsess. And ultimately, I've seen it where people obsess so much about this you know, the, oh, the, 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 I'm being attacked by an evil spirit of hungry. No, you just need a Snickers. Like, it's not, you know. But uh, to such an unhealthy degree, they get so wrapped up in the occult that they, they're no good for useful service in the kingdom of God, right? But I think that's less common. By far, the more common error is folks deny altogether the existence of a devil. This is easy to do nowadays because one, I think Satan encourages it. And two, devils in the pop culture are ridiculous creatures in red tights and a pitchfork. Images that are not in scripture anywhere, by the way. And so people, since they say, well, I can't believe in that silliness, I obviously can't believe in the devil. Not knowing that that image might, in fact, be planted there. I want to read uh, something uh, Tim Keller wrote. I just want to read it to you. I, um, uh, when it comes to superstition versus substition, he says, the way to deal with the devil is deal with your sin. Now watch this. To the superstitious who feel like, I'm afraid the devil's done something to me. Yeah, I might have some demonic influence in my life. Maybe I need to have holy water sprinkled over me. I don't know what needs to be done. Maybe I need to call an exorcist. The Bible would say the ordinary way you deal with the devil is get rid of his footholds. Okay, Get rid of sin. William Grinnell years ago, wrote a book called The Christian in Complete Armor. Here's the quote. If men hear a noise at night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and run for their life. But they carry the devil around in their hearts all day. If you have a proud spirit, if you have resentment, or if you have anxiety, you're under his power. He's setting you in a precarious place. My friends, why don't you run from your pride, crying, the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentments and your grudges, yelling the devil, the devil. Run from them in terror. You see what he's saying? It's our sin that gives the devil a foothold. That's what we must be aware of. So you could say then that the devil, I, I think you could sum this up by saying the devil has two strategies. And throughout time and culture, he has used them both. And I see them right here in verse 8. Roaring, 
superstition, fear, terror. Let everybody know. But also prowling. Don't let anybody know you exist. See? Two strategies. Terrorizing by direct assault. I think in some, te- in some cultures and in some time periods, terror by direct assault has been his strategy. I believe, in the, at least in our culture in 2021, the strategy, the current strategy the devil is adopting is prowling. Let no one know you even exist. In fact, laugh off the very thought. Ed Clowney, a great theologian, says all that better than I did. He said everything I've tried to say. If you're confused, just Ed Clowney said it in one sentence. Satan, like a lion, may hunt by stealth as well as by terror. And he could not ask for better cover than the illusion he doesn't exist. There it is. That's what what I was trying to say. Now, Jesus Christ, when he came, he came, obviously, to expose as well as destroy. Didn't he come to expose as well as destroy the works of the devil? Studying the Gospels are a way we can do that first part of verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Does anyone think it's just a little bit ironic that, of all people, this is the second time in 1 Peter he has said, Stay awake. Be watchful. Don't fall asleep when you're praying. You want to be like, really, Peter? Of all people. Peter knew a thing or two about not staying awake and being watchful and more susceptible to the devil, didn't he? Well, how not to fall into these two errors of denial or superstition? He uses the word, in verse 8, he uses the word for enemy, uh, the word adversary. The term has a legal connotation for Satan. It reflects the Old Testament picture of Satan, the accuser of the saints before the throne of God's justice. In the book of Job, Satan appears in the role of a heavenly prosecutor. In fact, he seems to patrol the earth collecting evidence. He's not after justice, of course. He's, after, he's trying to discredit God's word and destroy God's works. In Zechariah's vision, he stands before Joshua, the high priest, as an accuser. Satan cast doubt, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Satan cast doubt on the goodness of God and the trustworthiness of God's word. Remember? Uh, 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 did, did God, re- he asked Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, did God really say, the day you eat of this, you'll die? No. God's holding out on you. That's not what's going to happen. He, uh, interestingly, he tried the same thing in the showdown with Jesus in the wilderness. Remember right after Jesus' baptism, Jesus goes in to be tempted, led by the Spirit, to be tempted by the devil. And he did the same thing, right? He, he, he's trying to disparage God. He's trying to uh, uh, twist God's word. If, if you are the Son of God. See, he's trying to do, always trying to plant doubt. Always trying to accuse. You know, you're probably not even really the son of God. Did you ever think of that? So if you are the son of God, throw yourself off the temple. Turn these stones into bread, right? He's trying to show off his authority. Uh, uh, he's trying to, he, 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 it's all lies, right? I mean, the very fact that Satan would look at Jesus, the creator of all things, including Satan, the sovereign king of the whole universe, the fact that Satan would say, uh, you know, if you bow down, I'll give you all these uh, kingdoms. Who says they were yours to give, right? That's a crazy moment, isn't it? Jesus, such restraint. After fasting 40 days, turn these stones into bread. He must have been hungry. Turn these stones into bread. I heard Jerry Root say, the real miracle was not his restraint in not turning the stones into bread. He said, the real miracle is he didn't turn Satan into a loaf of bread. (laughs) It was never a fair fight, is the point, right? And he's the Lord of glory. And so this liar is going around trying to say, well, you know, can you really? I'll give you the... So Jesus not only defeated Satan, but he exposed him. 
And for thousands of years, right, it, it was true. Nobody had been able to do that. Satan had been running around the earth like he owns, like, like it's his house. That's why he offered Jesus the, you know, I'll give you these kingdoms. Satan's running around like he owns, like he's the biggest, baddest strong man in the whole house. And you got to give the devil his due. Caesar couldn't stop him and emperors couldn't stop him. And, and all these weak, lowly sinners, he's been plundering the souls of men. There's been prophets, priests, kings, they've come and gone and Satan's still around. But something happened in that showdown in the desert. We don't know what happened in the spiritual realms, but something happened at the temptation of Jesus after that showdown in the desert because in the rest, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, it happens uh, uh, for the rest of the Gospel of Mark, guess who never again makes a personal appearance? (laughs) Satan, the accuser. He doesn't get to show up again. He's utterly silenced. His demons show up in Mark, and every time they do, they're marked by one emotion, fear of Jesus. Something happened. I I think the demons saw what happened to the head of demons. I think they saw what happened to their big boss, Satan, and they're scared to death. It is funny, if you go back and read Mark, at least for the first eight chapters, nobody knows who Jesus is except the demons. He can't get the disciples to realize his power, but the demons know. There's a little clue, I think, to what happens, though, in, uh, in Mark 3, Jesus is questioned about how he's able to cast out all the demons. And there's these haters that say, well, he's able to do this because he uses Satan's power to cast out Satan. And everybody laughs. That's ridiculous. He says, no, that's not what's going on. And he says in Mark 3, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. I believe in some cosmic sense that the showdown in the wilderness Christ's perfect obedience to God the Father somehow bound the strong man, Satan, and Jesus was going around plundering his house, healing disease, making whole what's broken, and robbing hell of souls as he saves them. You could say that when the sky ripped open at Jesus' baptism, all heaven broke loose. So, the fact that Satan has been cast down from heaven and he knows his time is short makes him a more formidable adversary. Isn't it true that Animals are more dangerous when they know they're trapped. Isn't that true? When animals know that that their time is short, it doesn't make them less dangerous, it makes them more. So his fury against God and God's kingdom is even more intense. He's real and he's roaring and prowling, so be sober-minded and watchful. Now, verse 9, during the attack. So that's before the attack. Be sober-minded, watchful. Let's get our theology right about who the devil is. Okay, that's before. Now, during the attack. At some point, he will attack. What do I mean by attack? When I say he will attack, Essentially, this is what I mean. His attack is to get you to believe some lie about God. Let me say it again. The attack of the enemy is always to get you to believe some lie about who God is, about his character, about his nature, or his word. When Satan lies, Jesus says in John 8, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. (laughs) Because he's the father of lies. And he's going to bait you, and that, and that baiting is to believe a lie about God. When you, that's temptation. When you take the bait, that's called sin. So, for example, let's go through a couple examples. Why would anyone tell a lie? Well, God, I, I know that you say you'll guard my reputation and that I should, I should get all my approval from you, but I don't know if I can believe that. I don't know if you can be trusted. See, you hear that? Satan's working on me. I don't know if I can trust that. So I'm going to manipulate the truth, and I'm going to make people think I'm just a little bit better than I am because deep down, I don't know if I can trust you with my reputation. See that? I believe the lie. I did the sin. 
Uh, why would anyone steal? Well, the Bible says you're my good shepherd. You'll take care of me. But I, Satan says, you, can't, you don't know that. You don't know that. Ah, so there's the temptation. I don't know if I can truly believe you'll take care of me. So I need, I'm going to get this in an illicit way. Why? Because I don't know if you can be trusted. See, a lie in the goodness of God leads to the sin. Uh, that's the attack. Why would anyone uh, lust? Well, you say that you will fulfill all these appetites and pleasures, but I don't know if I can trust that, so I'm going to take what I would need in an illicit way because I don't know if you're a good father and I don't know if you can be trusted. You see that? Why would anyone take revenge or hold a grudge? Well, the Bible says, you, vengeance is yours, saith the Lord. You're the perfect judge. But I don't know if you're truly going to judge. I don't know if all this is real. And I don't know if you're real. So I'm going to hold grudges. And I'm going to make people pay for what they did. Why? Because I don't know if you can be believed. I don't know if you can be trusted. You see that? Every sin is ultimately traced back to a lack of belief in the goodness of God. So what do you do during that attack? Well, resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist. Think back to Craig Child's story. The lion attacks by fear and intimidation, and if it can get you to run, if it, 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 you know, Satan is a coward. He only attacks from behind. So if you can stand firm, the Bible says, he will eventually retreat. The book of James says, resist the devil, and then you'll be able to flee from him. Is that what it says? No, 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 no. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's literally what happened. When Jesus resisted him, Jesus said, be gone. Matthew 4.11 at Jesus' temptation, it doesn't say Jesus had to turn and leave. It says the devil had to leave him. See that? You need to know that Satan is a roaring lion, but he is a tethered lion. I hope that gives you courage. Resist. Hang on. Stand firm in your faith. Your victory will come. He cannot tempt you beyond what you can bear. God will not permit it. And no temptation will ever seize us except what is common to man. See, our brotherhood throughout the world is going through the same thing. Firm in your faith and the knowledge you are not alone. Get to know your faith and get to know your friends. (laughs) That's what it means to resist the devil when he attacks. If the attack is to believe the lie, then how do you stand firm? How do you resist? It means trust in God. The Bible does not say resist him firm in your willpower. No. Resist him firm in your faith. In other words, look for the truth about God to counteract every lie embedded in the temptation. Let me say it again. You look for the truth about God from God's word, right? You look for the truth about God to counteract every lie that's embedded in the temptation. Wait a minute, you think. Wait a minute. Why am I stealing? I I don't have to steal. Why? God is my good shepherd. He will provide for me. He has given me everything. Wait a minute. I don't have to lie. I don't have to... I don't have to uh, 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 improve my reputation in the eyes of others through manipulation and through sort of shading the truth a little bit. Why? Because it's God that gives me my security. It's God that gives me my significance. I know that from his word. I'm a child of God. Wait, God has never failed me. God has never not provided for me. I don't have to greed or lust or an appetite for uh, illicit things. You've never failed me. So you go back to the truth. That's what it means to resist him firm in your faith. That's what to do during the attack. Resist. Stand firm. And eventually he will flee from you, Christian. 
finally, after the tack. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After the attack, it says God himself will do four things. He is the God of all grace. Did you see that? He, in Christ, will himself restore. God does not send a customer service agent. God doesn't even send an angel. He sees to your care personally. He himself, have you felt that? That he himself restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes. Restore. Uh, Let me say this as a word of grace to every single born-again believer. You need to hear this this morning. You may be hearing all this, and it may be difficult to hear because the more you hear, the more weight you feel. It's interesting. You can even uh, have this thing happen where it bends back on itself. Here I am preaching a sermon about how Satan is the accuser, and in 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 sort of a weird way, he's been so accusing you for so long that even as you hear this, you're hearing accusation. Like you're bearing the weight. So I'm, I'm talking about resisting, and you're thinking, I haven't resisted. And I'm talking about standing firm, and you're going, I, I don't do it. And I'm talking about believing lies, and you're saying, I, I believe every lie there is. It seems like I never get this right. It seems like I always stumble. I always fall. And eventually you feel like maybe, maybe I'll fall too far, and maybe there's no hope. I mean, I, how many times can you totally mess this up? How many times can you not resist? How many times can you believe the lie of the enemy? And over and over you feel this way. So you need to hear this word of grace. The first thing he promises to do after the attack, he himself will restore you. And no one, no one knew the power of that word more than our man Peter himself. Fair? It was Peter Who and everybody else, oh, no, no, even if everybody else denies you, I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll stand by you. And then in the moment where Jesus needed Peter, of course, I don't know him. I never knew the man. Knew that he would be kicked out and Jesus would would be done with him. But there at that breakfast by the lake, you remember that, right? In John 21, he brings him back to the site of the original call. Uh, It's interesting, Jesus is sitting in there with with a charcoal fire. In John 21. So that charcoal fire, that's the exact word that's used. The last time we saw a charcoal fire in Peter's life was no good. Do you know your Bibles? Do you know what I'm talking about? In John 21, there's a charcoal fire. It says Jesus is sitting by having some fish there that morning. So he brings Peter back to the charcoal fire. And you know smell is a very powerful form of memory. And the last time Peter was in front of a charcoal fire was the moment of his great failure. Got it? So there he is. That, he was at a charcoal fire when he denied the Lord. And there Jesus brings him back. So he knows they're going to talk about it. And there around that fire, he says, Simon, son of John. That's the first time Peter and Jesus have talked about the incident. So the risen Lord is back. Simon, doesn't call him by his nickname. Doesn't call him Peter. Says, Simon, son of John. Let me ask you something. Is it a good sign when an authority figure uses your full name? I assure you it is not. So Peter knows what's coming. And you know the end of this story. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Peter says, I love you. 
and it occurs to me, he brought him back. He had to talk about this. They had to address it, so they had to come to the charcoal fire. But the charcoal fire is not the only landmark in John 21. He's also by the lake of Gennesaret. He's also by the Sea of Galilee. What's special about the Sea of Galilee? That's also the site of his first call. He's not just bringing him back to the scene of failure. He's also bringing him back to the sea of his love, to the place where he first called him, and he restored him. Some of you will remember way back to this sermon I preached called Every Member a Disciple. Others of you are kind enough to say, yes, I remember that. In that sermon about every member a disciple, I tried to make the case that being a disciple, the best definition for being a disciple, a disciple is being an apprentice, right? So you want to be able to do what this person can do. Some people think discipleship is about knowing a lot of stuff. And if you're an apprentice to a piano player, I guess in a sense you kind of want to know what they know, but really you want to be able to do what they do, make beautiful music on the piano. So my favorite illustration of this is a welder. Go down here to Wallace State and enroll in a welding program. You'll, I assume, become an apprentice to a welder. And yes, sort of what you want is head knowledge, but really what you want more than head knowledge, you want to be able to make metal stick together. You know, you want to be able to do what that person can do so you can go get a good job and make, you know, money. So, 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 so to be an apprentice, so you're an apprentice to a welder. And, and, and if I ask you, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Most of us hem and haul. And there's no need for that. You, none of you would think twice if I said, are you enrolled in a welding program at Wallace State? You wouldn't be like, well, maybe. You would know. Do you or do you not take piano lessons? I don't know. I'm not very good. That's not what I asked, right? So most people, when you ask, are you a disciple? There's all this hesitation because what they think you're asking is, are you a good disciple? That's not what I'm asking. Are you in the school of Jesus? Are you an apprentice? Are you enrolled? Have you decided that if I I want to learn how to weld, I got to become an apprentice to a welder. If I want to learn how to love my enemies, I got to become an apprentice. Only one person that can teach me how to do that. If I want to learn how to bless somebody who's literally spitting on me, and if I want to learn how once I'm dead, how to come back up out of that grave, there's only one person in the universe to teach me that. So I want to be an apprentice to Jesus Christ. I'm going to stay in the school. And what most of us do when I ask, are you an apprentice of Jesus Christ? Well, when you put it like that, yeah, I'm an apprentice of Jesus Christ. Apprentices aren't expected to always get it right. Apprentices, by very definition, are going to mess up. Most of the time in the New Testament, we see Jesus correcting his apprentices. We see him correcting his disciples. You with me? So when we say, are you an apprentice of Jesus Christ? You shouldn't have to think twice. Every Christian, now, now if you say, yeah, but I should be further along. Oh, I should be further along in my walk with Christ. You need to know this. Every single Christian I've ever met thinks they should be further along in their walk with Christ. Everyone. In fact, what's the alternative? Imagine meeting a Christian who's like, nope, I'm good. I've nailed it. I'm completely perfect in Christ-like. You'd be like, you are delusional and we gotta go back to square one, right? So if you say, I should be further along in my walk with Christ, it doesn't mean you're not an apprentice. It means you're in the school, right? You're an apprentice. And stay in the school. Listen, to every disciple who feels like, I'm a failure and I always fail. I would rather be an F student flunky in the school of Jesus than the valedictorian in the school of wickedness. Wouldn't you? So stay in the school. Okay. I'm saying all this stuff because I'm after this one word, restore. And I'm trying to give grace to anybody who feels like they've fallen or they've messed up or they're no good. 
restore. I said basically all that at this youth camp a couple weeks ago in Texas. And uh, I, I probably said it shorter. But I, I tried to say all that about being an apprentice, and I used my welder illustration. Now stay with me. The next morning, it was really early in the morning, and at this youth camp in Texas, they had a little pond there, a lake, where the kids could go fishing. And this uh, a group of boys, would, he goes, hey, you're the, you're the preacher dude. You're the, you're the speaker guy. I was like, yeah. He goes, hey, that was crazy. You said that about welding last night. I said, oh, yeah? He says, yeah, I, where I go to school, there's a dual, enroll, uh, dual credit thing. And basically, my senior year, we're allowed to take tech school classes, and I'm enrolled as a welding apprentice. I just thought that was crazy. That's so cool. So I asked the kid, and he, he had no idea what I, was, what, what I was going, what I was after, which makes his answer all the more innocent and beautiful. I asked him, I said, can I ask you a question? Yeah, man. If you're welding and you completely mess up, I mean, you botch something and it goes horribly wrong, would your welding, professor, your welding instructor kick you out of the school forever? He had no idea what I was driving at. I think he missed the metaphor, and that makes, his, that makes his answer all the more beautiful. He looks at me dead serious. He goes, no, man, my teacher's awesome. No, I guess if I totally messed up, he would put on his gear, get in the booth with me, show me what I did wrong and how to get it right the next time. I said, kid, you don't know it, but you just preached my sermon for me. Because <laughs> I got a lot of people I know that are Christians that think a welding instructor has more grace than Jesus. Everybody in here knows a welding instructor will put his arm around you and go, hey, here's how to get it right. You're an apprentice, kid. You're learning. Come on. And yet they think they, they mess up with the Lord Jesus and it's out of the school forever. He himself will restore, confirm, confirm. That means establish. After Peter was restored, he was made a rock and he was told to strengthen others. Strengthen. Restore, confirm, strengthen. This is the only place in the New Testament where this verb is used. It's used once in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Job to describe, you ready for this? The strength of the lion. <laughs> Which is pretty cool to remember. Satan is a roaring lion, but he's not the only lion out there, is he? All hail the lion of Judah the risen Christ. Finally, it says he will establish you. This is like the founding of a city, giving you a firm foundation. And how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Like First Peter. Verse 11 says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. God, I pray for anyone who is before uh, a lion attack that they will be sober-minded and watchful and grant to them a proper theology and doctrine of the devil that we might not be unaware of his evil schemes. For anyone right now who says that they are in the middle of a lion attack, that they're in that during phase, and they're, they're, they're feeling the heat of temptation right now, God, grant them the grace to stand firm in their faith, resisting and knowing they have brothers and sisters throughout the world facing the same thing. They're not alone. And for anyone who has come through an attack, uh, feeling some wounds and some fear that they've fallen too far, that there's no hope, God, grant to them this word of grace that you yourself will restore and establish and strengthen like a welding instructor 
showing us how to get it right the next time. God, grant to them that word of grace this morning. For those that are not yet followers, oh, Lord, let today be the day where you save and you uh, 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 grant to them the uh, first steps on this great journey. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your love for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.